A year ago, my latest doomed mission, a high-profile restaurant in the Times Square area, went out of business. The meat, fish, and produce purveyors got the news that they were going to take it in the neck for yet another ill-conceived enterprise. When customers called for reservations, they were informed by a pre-recorded announcement that our doors had closed. Fresh from that experience, I began thinking about becoming a traitor to my profession. Ahoy, and welcome to the Sunken Treasures podcast. This is an exploratory adventure where five friends from across the globe seek to find hidden gems lost to the tides of time. From cinema and literature to philosophy and economics, we are a small yet mighty armada of unique expertise, and together, we attempt to map out meaning in our world today. The captains of this adventure are Daniel Knickerbocker, Alejandro Chavez, Donovan Roberts, Vikyat Mutiala, and me, Kat Lee. Keep in mind, this is an interactive podcast. We recommend checking out the episode's treasure beforehand for a much richer experience. You can find links in the description of the episode. So, are you ready to sift through the sands for the sunken treasures? So, for this week's episode... We will be reviewing an article from 1999 called Don't Eat Before Reading This. This was written by the one and only Anthony Bourdain. And I'm particularly excited about this piece because this is arguably what put Anthony on the map. This, again, published in 1999, (laughs) barely preceded his book that put him on the kind of more global sphere, Kitchen Confidential. So... This, this sunken treasure was brought to you by yours truly because I have just been infatuated with this man. I think most people, if anyone came across Kitchen Confidential, that was my first experience. Um, I didn't read this article until much later, but he has such a clear and distinct voice in his writing. It's you know peppered with like the kind of raunchy, jaded, sour outlook on life but at the same time he he is able to balance a sense of humanity that's quite sobering you know he still has hope and in talking to another person or just in individuals in general and encourages the reader to go out and actually be exposed to not only another person's culinary experience but really getting to understand another individual in their home territory, right? In their, you know, I think there's a famous quote, like whether it's across oceans or across the street, be there, eat, eat that person's food and understand what makes it special to them. So for anyone who would like to access today's treasure, check out this, the description in the episode for a link. And again, this is an interactive podcast. You can engage with us on your preferred platform, and drop us a comment about your very own sunken treasure. But for our listeners that didn't get a chance to experience this week's treasure, Vikya, will you help us out with the summary? Of course. Don't Eat Before Reading This is a 1999 New Yorker article by Anthony Bourdain. This was pre 
the time during which Anthony Bourdain was this very famous chef with his travel show and you know dining with Obama and like it this was way before before that before even Kitchen Confidential his famous book in this in this article he this is a time when his restaurant venture had recently closed and then he admits in the article that he decided to become a traitor to to his to his own kind and to the restaurant business in a cheeky uh, he mentions that in a cheeky sense he starts the article by talking about how gastronomy is the science of pain about how foods can hurt you and irritate you and he makes uh, a funny joke about how there are some foods which might only mildly hurt you the first 200 times and the 201st time they could violently hurt you he goes into detail about the quote unquote secrets of the profession then he goes on to talk about how fish arrives on fridays because they don't usually deliver on saturdays and sundays so that means that the fish you're eating on a saturday, sunday night has been sitting in god knows what conditions uh, ever since friday morning it is very hard to keep things refrigerated when you know the meats are being constantly moved around put, put next to each other and all of that he talks about how tuesday is an ideal day to to go to a restaurant he talks about how chefs like to cook for the weekday crowd than the weekend crowd and talks about how the weekday is for like it's more of a tourist trap kind of thing almost it's for those who don't know any better almost and people who like their steak well done are doing the rest of us a solid by taking the bad cuts of the meat <laughs> because he talks about how when a cut is really bad and a line chef asks <laughs> the main chef what do i do that he says just save it for well done because anyone who is eating it well done doesn't really know the difference he'll be fine then he goes on to talk about something they might hate even more than what he says the b word brunch other vegetarians he talks about vegetarians and their even extreme <laughs> even more extreme uh, cousins the vegans and he talks about how it is so hard to feed them because the fact that many people order chicken itself is bad enough he says because whatever you put it in chicken more or less tastes like chicken whereas other types of meat depending on how you cook it how you make it tastes very different but for vegetarians you can't even serve that so it becomes a very minimal and he talks about what kind of a life that is that can't you know experience the taste of having veal and all these different types of meats so he talks about how it is it enrages him to have to serve to vegetarians and he talks about how at that time there was a huge there was a huge sentiment against the use of butter and restaurants were saying oh we are moving away from butter and then he says even though they tell you that in any decent restaurant a slab of butter is being used with every meal so all these sauces all uh, the sauteing of the onions happens in the butter uh, you know when you're frying fish and stuff like that there's butter everywhere there's no way to avoid it and he talks about how restaurants are greasier than you might expect and he says your kitchen at home is very likely cleaner even if it's one of the top restaurants and if you're someone who doesn't want your food touched by <laughs> a bunch of strangers you probably shouldn't go out because the fancier the places and the fancier the food arrangement is the more people are touching it with their greasy fingers i mean yes there are gloves in every counter but do we use it eh don't tell the health inspector but we don't always so then he talks about uh he talks about how there is a very tense environment in the kitchens and how 
There are plates thrown around, including a few thrown by Bourdain himself. And he says he has moved on to a better place in life where he is working for a French bistro now, where no one is complaining about meat and, you know, it's it's traditional. He finally can make food the way he wants to make it. And then he closes the article by saying, I'm home. So that is uh, Don't Eat Before Reading This by Anthony Bourdain. Nice. Thank you so much. I have been particularly excited to talk about this with y'all because not only our diversity and experience with food and our respective regions of the world, but I, you know, I think you, I know you've heard me talk about previously, like food is just such a point of passion for me. I see so much beauty in food <laughs> and it's, it's inextricable from being from the human experience, right? It's like one of the few things we can really call universal and just what it does for the individual, but as well as the communal, familial, societal respect. There's just so many layers to it. And, and ultimately, if I find a lot of hope in food because no matter if you're, you know, popping, you know, pizza rolls in the oven to feed three kids <laughs> it, or you're, you know, having a this beautiful gourmet dinner, in each respect, you're seeing people make do the best with what they have around them. Um, I, and I find a lot of hope and resilience in food creativity. So yeah, I guess to kick things off, I wanted to share, I guess, my initial experience with Anthony Bourdain. Someone gave me his book, Kitchen Confidential, when I was like early, mid-high school. So let's say like 15, 16 years old, um, which I don't know. I, I'm sure some parents are like, that's not, a, not suitable for a teenager because it does get a little dicey there. But I'm curious to learn, um, were you familiar with Anthony Bourdain before this or what were your experiences like? Yeah, I I knew of Anthony Bourdain as like how he was always respected as someone who experienced different cultures in the way they were supposed to be experienced and not from like this angle of I am this chef who, you know, is going to break this down or say like, oh, but from like there are there are these I, there are these videos of him sitting in Vietnam or Japan or, or wherever he is, he is eating. You can at least in, in the limited amount of what I've seen of him, you can see the humility with which he approaches that. And even if the other person is not a chef, he's just someone from that culture who happens to be hosting him that day and is cooking. His body language and the way he composes himself in a place of you obviously know better about this and tell me was something very interesting to see. And that is something, though I, I saw it many years ago, that is something that stuck to me as that is... Even someone, even if it is uh, a mother in a country, in a, in a country different than yours, but they have the cultural, uh, all the cumulative cultural knowledge and the way he, so to learn from them, they obviously have a lot more, even if you're like an expert chef. So that was just always very interesting for me to see the way he experiences the cultures and puts himself in a learner's role no matter who that other person is the other person hasn't have doesn't have to be an indian chef it can just be someone who's hosting him but made indian food but he's not an expert so he's going to listen and the way he listens itself came across to me as quite quite unique and special yeah it shows wisdom when you're always open to learning and you can humble yourself and 
acknowledge that there's someone who's in a position, you know, that gives them an advantage. So, yeah, it's, I understand that. But I'd like to say one thing, though, before we continue. That um, our listeners may know Kat said it many times, how, sh- how much she loves food, right? Um, and, like, when I was growing up, like, people would ask me as a child, like, if you had a superpower, what kind of superpower would you like to have? Like, would you like to fly, walk through walls, like, read people's minds? And I think being able to eat whatever I'd like to eat without getting fat is the power <laughs> that I choose. Amen. And if our, oh if our, listeners, if our listeners don't uh. know, Kat isn't the, the fattest member of our group. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, I am three uh, cats. She's, she's very lucky. She, she has that <laughs> power. Cat she's like <laughs> our mutant friend who can eat what she wants to eat. Oh, my God. I didn't And just mind. not gain weight. Uh, it's, yeah. I didn't know it's, where uh, this was going to go, but this is the biggest compliment I could have it's, uh, hoped for. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a amazing. privilege that, that most people would love to have. It really is. It's, it's one of those X-Men type thing. I mean, I, I'm not sure how she'd fight crime with it, but um, <laughs> it's, it's good. Just but she could show, you know, it's food. like the, the hot dog eating competition that happens at Coney Island every year. And it's always like that, like for a long time, it was like this tiny Japanese woman and she would eat like 42 hot dogs in five minutes. And Jesus Christ, like incredible. I, um, that's my, never mind. <laughs> I was going to make a sexual joke there, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, oh leave that one. I'll leave that one. <laughs> we'll leave that one. Um, so obviously my husband is, you know, I've spoken, I think in previous episodes of, you know, we, we own a restaurant. My husband is trained as a chef and, um, but my brother, brother, my brother is a chef. Um, and so my early experiences with Anthony Anthony Bourdain had to do when my brother's four years younger than I am. And we were super close in our twenties. Um, and he read this book as part of either part of a culinary curriculum or shortly after, um, and my brother, I love him so much, Aaron. I hope you listen to this. Um, he is just like he's a no nonsense guy. Like he never he's never done drugs. Like he's an Eagle Scout. Like he is like the guy that like you look at and you're like, God, I hope he doesn't see what I really do. Um, and <laughs> you know, he was like, and so I think he this book for him um, was. You know, I don't, I don't know what his experience was, but I know that he, it, it validated for him a lot of sort of the like, why is it, why does it have to be like this? Like, why is it this, this particular, why, why is a C plus good enough? Like, why is that like the industry standard? Um, and, you know, his experience was he went to culinary school after sort of like not really doing, you know, university wasn't his jam. He, he went to university and that wasn't his jam. And then he was like really looking at like, BMW auto mechanic school or like culinary school. And he ended up going to culinary school and he did great. He loved it. I think he found like he had his niche and then he did his internship right after culinary school at this like iconic restaurant um, in, in a town close to us. I'm going to just keep it anonymous, but it's like a place that, you know, you would think it's a well-established, like seemingly good high-end food. And he did his internship there and he left cooking after that internship for like six years because of the amount of drug use he was, he was like, like, how is anybody functioning? Like they're like doing Coke to like deal with their hangover 
from like too many shift drinks the night before. And he didn't get a lot of like mentorship and he did document processing <laughs> for six years until he ended up in a corporate kitchen um, where he had a, like a great mentor who was creative and hilarious. And, um, and now he's an executive chef and, and he like draws the line in the sand with people. But, um, but even he now has this like kitchen persona where, you know, he'll say things that are totally like somebody, I remember he told a story where somebody grabbed one of his knives, like off his station to cut something. He was like, did you just take my knife? And the guy was like, yeah, he's like, would you fuck my wife? He's like, cause that's what just happened here. <laughs> <laughs> the guy was like, uh, what? And he's like, all right, like, let's talk about what's expected. Like you know, just walk up to somebody's station and take something like, that's not how things roll around here. But, um, Those you know, I think personal like items, right. Well, and, and like, but to like, to your point, like the tempers, the previous restaurant that we were part owners in, there was a frying pan that was like bent in half and mutilated and like lived outside. And that's what you did when you couldn't like handle what was going on. You went outside and you grabbed the frying pan, you like smashed it against the cement, like everybody else had done previously. And you like go back in. Um, but I think it's, the book is so interesting in like the article too. Um, I had never heard of him, um, to be honest, but I'm so excited that I now know about him because I'm very, I find very entertaining, um, like cooking shows, right? Like, I don't know, I watched the Chef's Table series mm. in Netflix. I think it's great. I just finished The Bear this week. Oh, that's um, tough. Yes, chef. Exactly, <laughs> uh, and and I'm I'm very fascinated by the culinary, you know, like world lifestyle. Yeah, like I I I it's like a secret really society. Think, it really is right, and it's just a very unique world. Um, I have never experienced it, never worked at a restaurant before, um, but I do for sure want to at some point in my life to spend years living in that world and just learning what it is about but no this was a great article i don't I, i found it very transparent in the sense of like this is how things work um he's kind of a no bullshit yeah. writer <laughs> right it's like and this is listen, it's like a love letter to my dysfunctional family yeah. it's like listen to all, and it really <laughs> kept me thinking about for that that part of the article that talks about if you are someone who doesn't like uh, your food to be touched, uh, just keep in mind that maybe around 12 people touched it before it got to you. It just, I don't know, like it, it kept me thinking of how of a simulated world it is to be in the restaurant compared to be cooking the food, right? Like these I was just thinking of my experience of going to a restaurant and sitting down and chatting and enjoying my time and enjoying the food. Um, and I really don't have any problems with people touching my food. Please do. Like, it's okay. Like, I, you know, I live in a world where I already ate a bunch of food that was touched by many people. Um, and I'm okay. I'm alive. I'm not sick. So that's okay. But it, it just really kept me wondering about this simulation of a very nice plate 
a very enjoyable food, but in the back end to get to there, it's a complete shit show that functions very nicely in harmony. Right, it's a very I complex world. I wouldn't say it functions in harmony. I would say it like gets <laughs> it there and I yeah. mean, it <laughs> works, right? But, like you know, somehow. Adam, Adam calls this the theater of dining, um, right? And it's actually like you know one of his. He's like listening to the background, but like one of his favorite things is like this. If you do it right at a really nice restaurant, you shouldn't notice your server. You shouldn't notice like. Cause we, we take silverware out after like starter plates and bring new silverware for entrees. Um, and you, you shouldn't even, it should like disappear and reappear. And like, hmm. there shouldn't be this. Whereas if you go to like a fast casual place, at least in the U S you get like awkward servers who are like, um, do you know, and, you know, they like interrupt your conversation to like hmm. ask you a question, like that shouldn't happen. And cause otherwise like the only benefit from eating out is that you're not doing dishes. But it's, if you're at a place that is, like it really has like an ambiance and a like, you know, things arriving. Right. People like describing the wine to you in this really beautiful way. And um, it, it's the theater, right? Like the yeah, experience of but that behind they the curtain, create just for like you. in a exactly. theater, like you have like people that are like, shit, this costume is ripped. And like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you do it well, the customer will not see it, right? Like right. They, you will never notice. You will never so, know if there's a shit show back there. <laughs> I, I understand that philosophy of giving people the space to enjoy the ambiance and stuff like that. But from what I can hear, from, or from what I've heard then, um, the margin, the profit margin at restaurants seem to be pretty slim. And so, because, and the reason why it's slim is because you have a ton of competition. As in, tons of restaurants, usually if you go to a specific place, there's like a specific area where just, there's just a group of restaurants all in the same location. There's an economical reason for that, but let's not get into that right now. But um, right now I saw, they have restaurants online where they show you like the girl comes up and she has like a very mean look on her face and she just flings your food on the desk, the table, shows your middle finger, bite one of your chips, and just fling it black back in your like. And it's like, it's like, it's it's all about the drama. Each restaurant the has their right? own presentation. Yeah. Hooters is one that yep. did well for itself because it did something new. You get some boobs and you get your food, <laughs> right? And so I don't know if it's any one particular theatrical experience that matters I think it's more about being unique. So that philosophy that's held by, that, that you use in your restaurant is good, you know, in your area. If, the, if there's nobody else doing the same thing, if everybody's Which doing the same thing, yeah. well, then maybe you need to start cursing people out and telling them that they're a mf or something well, and that would probably help business. So. Maybe it's like a line <laughs> where you try to decide how much on what direction you want to go. Because... For sure, there's some all the dine, uh, fine dining restaurants. Like you're not gonna go because of the nice experience that I guess the service has. Like for example, on that restaurant that I have also seen, where people like the waiters and waitresses just come in. Like the the theme of the restaurant is angry people, right? And they just <laughs> treat you like shit, and and you go for that, right? 
But yeah. I can assure you that the food is not is is just not the same, right? Like they might I I think they serve like normal fast food, like normal dining uh food compared to the ex- the culinary experience of a fine dining that they don't put a lot of effort into creating a unique theatrical experience, but the theater experience is the food, right? Like they put a lot of thought into um The plates and the progression of the plates. Like the whole dinner is being planned for you usually. Um, I've seen some though that curse you out and give you good food. (laughs) It's, it's an, I would say kind of like a, I've never heard of this, like, like a novelty thing situation. Yeah, it's a thing. (laughs) Oh, there are places which are just famous for that. Like there's this whole Conan sketch. Of this yeah. hot dog place in Chicago where they like swear like really badly at you. And that whole thing is 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 a whole part of the ordering experience. Part of and the then experience. he takes the he yeah. takes there's this there's this dog uh that that show used to show up on the Conan show, which like oh, I remember keeps that. roasting people. Yeah. It keeps roasting it's people like he so they poos take on people, I poo on you, like that dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that dog. So they take that dog to that restaurant and then the then the, the the people taking the ca- the, the cashiers and the dog have a roast off. So yeah, there are some places that are known purely for how good they are with their comebacks and all that. Yeah. It's hilarious. And I think what's I mean, really the- like because of your and I'll push back on the competition thing for I don't know I don't I don't know because I'm not I'm not an economist and I don't like I sort of have an idea about markets and but the reason that the profit margin is so slim as the quality goes up is because the, like the ingredients mm. are super expensive and, and everything expires fewer people doing it. Well, and you have to get super creative and, and so then you can't be open more hours because uh, like, honestly, like we are open five days a week. Um, so usually we're open four, but for the summer we're open five. We have one day for prep where they're like, washing all the produce and making the mayonnaise for the week and, you know, like doing all the like sauces that they're going to make for the week. And then there's also like the deep clean day because to like push back on your like situation, like, yeah, if a restaurant's open seven days a week, nobody's cleaning the hood because that is like a situation. It smells terrible when you like clean the, like pump that thing. Like it's gross. And so like you couldn't possibly like do that while there are customers around and we do we deep clean the restaurant like scrub everything and like blow out the coolers so there's not like lint a deep cleaning every week every week we do it oh Oh, wow you would not believe i mean so he kind of opens the article like being a chef you're kind of like you're dancing with like these dark bacterial forces of you know beef chicken cheese shellfish particularly chicken because as we know like salmonella is a very real thing there's a method to the madness like if you didn't know the kitchen it would look like a total shit show like how does anyone get anything done but it's a chef to kind of see that pattern you know encourage another pattern or whatever it is you know kind of institute some kind of framework um but we mean you have to be an intense personality to keep up with a proper kitchen like i've i have worked not so much in a back of house i was like a a server, a back, what do you call it, a, a weight back previously, but I've, 
I've been primarily in front of house. It's like a, do you know what a bar back is? The person that goes, like gets ice or restocks, doesn't really bartend. So in that particular position, I was working at a a fine dining, like chef set menu, but I had not quite, I I wasn't there long enough to even take the server test yet. So I was kind of a weight back. I was, I was washing like all the little accoutrement dishes and like restocking, getting silverware where it needed to be. You know. Mise en place is like something you'll hear a lot in any proper kitchen. Monty uh, did which that. To- I'm getting my mise en place, mom. Okay, Monty. And that like- for anyone who may not know or listeners that may not know, that just means everything has its place. And it's honestly a really good philosophy for just about any part of life is like put things back where they belong and like, before you start a project, get your materials out and like make sure you you're prepared. Have everything. But yeah. yeah. Um, but I've also worked at places, you know, in college I worked at this diner. You know, we had one chef. His name was Tommy. He was an old man. And I would be waiting like literally like 22, 25 tables by myself when I opened. But Oh there, wow. And it was a small plate. You know, we're talking like two top, three top, or four top most. I think we had like two six tops. So it's not like a, but super casual, right? Like we're slinging bacon. We're doing the the brunch all day, every day. Nobody's going to have questions about the entrees on that menu. Right. (laughs) Um, it's, It's just a very, very interesting, I don't know, experience. Or you learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about yourself because you are on your feet for sometimes 13 hours a time, right? Like, and, and then the, you also see this division between back of house, which is like the kitchen, you know, grueling, heat, sweat, like bacterial forces. And then you have front of house who are all, you know, the servers who are supposed to AC units. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they get the classic, tips. Classical yeah. music. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's always kind of like this rivalry because bet- specifically between like a chef and like front of house because, and this is my understanding, but in the eyes of the chef, the server will never represent his food good enough. Like the only person who can represent his food good enough is him. But he has to trust those people to go talk about his food and deliver his food and give that experience to that table when we have like pre-show i don't know if this was your experience cat i never worked in restaurants before i mean i worked in like a a counter service place but never like in an actual restaurant but like we have pre-shift every day and they go over like there's tastings and they go over the if there's new wines and like then they have the menu where they look at like what can be changed for vegetarians what can't Mm -hmm. what is like celiac friendly and what's not and like what, you know, what the chef is willing to change on each thing and, you know, what's already set. Um, it's because the servers have to have that information and they have to deliver it with like confidence and eloquence and not be like, oh, uh, let me go ask. <laughs> right. That's not That's like when you're charging you 60 say. bucks a plate, you don't get to say like, uh, hold on a second, I'll go find out. And you better not make something up. You better know it. You right. know it and know enough to at least like maybe you don't know the direct answer but you can like work your way around the answer right. but when we somebody did says have, like i want a buttery chardonnay you're like oh here like let me show you on the menu like what what will fit that bill for you and 
That's crazy. We did do, yeah, pre-shift. It was, I guess, back in 2018, 2019 was my last, uh, you know, restaurant job. Uh, we did the, you know, wine tastings. And you learn so much about these ingredients and wines and stuff. But that's also where I learned um, an allium disease or a la- an allium allergy, which is, I'd never heard of it before. But of course, when you get into these higher caliber restaurant experiences, they're going to be sensitive to all of the allergies. But for those who may not know, allium is any kind of onion, shallot, garlic, any kind of root-based. It's like a particular, well, yeah, it's a particular plant family. Yeah, but it's yeah, onions. Oh, garlic, that's you, ramp. Said, you, you said that there are people. There's who are no way they're that. getting food in yeah. India if they can't eat onions. So why don't they stay home then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Because a life without oh. garlic is not a life I want to live. Honestly. No, but you're going to make yeah. everybody else's life miserable. Just stay home. Don't, don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't come to my restaurant and tell me about the allergy where I can't use 90% of what's in my kitchen. It's so, funny because like the people with these allergies typically have a lot of money somehow. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, they are privileged enough to have allergies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh my that god. Allergy privilege. Because you're not going into McDonald's like, oh, I have an allium allergy. <laughs> like, anyways, but what were you about to say, Alejandro? Oh, oh I, I was gonna propose maybe to take that direction, um, like take the conversation on that direction of what's the take on. The mind of a chef who's here to try to put something together that somebody else can enjoy, but now also living in a world that for good or for bad, let's call it people are a, a bit more informed about... Also a bit more entitled. Maybe the information gives you entitlement, right? Like uh, you have people who now start to choose to be vegetarians and... Hopefully they just kept it to themselves and it was as Donovan said, like stay home and don't make everybody <laughs> else <is> miserable. <laughs> but no, right? Like the entitlement also comes. And I mean, they, they are part of the society, so we need to include them. Um, but like, how how has that been? Maybe for, for you, Daniel, that you have a restaurant in where you have a creative mind trying to put something together that is unique and artistic and special, or at least tasty. <laughs> um, and you have all these society changes that, yeah, well, people are just more picky. I would say probably, I mean, during the busy season, I'm going to say 70% of people make reservations. And our protocol is that when we make those reservations, we ask if there are any special events or food sensitivities and we note it on the reservation. And so that helps sort of get an idea when they do Mm. pre-shift, they look at reservations. Okay. We have like this, 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 and this happening. Um, And certainly with a big party, we make those requests up front, like, okay, what's, is there anything we need to know about? And I think ultimately like, we just, you know, tell them what is and isn't available to be changed. And like sauces that are made at the beginning of the week that have garlic in them, like that's inextricable, you know, you can't pull that out. Um, but certainly like we have things like cornbread that is extraordinary and like full of butter um, that doesn't have 
you know, it's like, well, here are the things that, you know, we have charred, charred broccoli that has Parmesan on it. Like that's not everything has garlic and onions. Um, and, and also we don't do, we do a lot of, we do some composed food, but also like part of what we do. And I think there's a lot of fine dining restaurants do more of this, especially the more creative, like farm to table ones is like showcasing a single ingredient rather than doing a lot of like, you know, complex sauces or like things that are, and, and we do a lot of, um, grilled things. We do some brines, but, um, do you recycle your butter for hollandaise sauce? <laughs> that was a we don't do, we don't do hollandaise sauce. Um, what do we recycle? We, what we do do a lot of is, and this is where also where you get profit margins, right? It's mm. like, instead of ordering fish cuts, we order whole fish. And like when the halibut right, arrives, the thing it. is like a beast. And like you have like three hours to break it down because it doesn't fit in the walk-in. Um, cooling is just expensive. And like it's real estate. The more freezers you have, the fewer tables you can have. And so like also there's a whole weighing on that. But like we break down whole fish so that we can keep all the scrap and make stock and make like fish. Pa- oh, this is like when you order sushi, anytime you order the spicy tuna or spicy salmon it's all the crap that got like scraped off and then they (laughs) mince it up and like make it you know it's like the well-done meat situation Um, but we make like salmon patties or like a rillette which is like a really like fatty meat that you put on um crostini same with like beef tartare that's like yeah all that chopped stuff but it's delicious i mean pates you just like make it really good add pork fat when in doubt add pork fat um, and that will like make everything or duck fat is also really magical for making scraps taste like there's something extraordinary. So if you're smart and you use scrap, like, and, and because we're a farm to table, you know, Adam has this great saying that once you laminate a menu, you're done being creative <laughs> and <laughs> you have these like steakhouses in America that like have these like portfolio menus. They're like these leather bound, like, could like knock somebody out with it and they like hand it to you and they haven't changed what they're doing in like at least a year. Um, but you know, when we start to run out of something, it will probably like an entree. We only have three orders of scallops left. Okay. Let's make it a starter. And then it becomes a smaller version of that thing or something else gets mixed with it or it becomes a soup or a sauce or something. And we had a muscle chimichurri that was served on oh. steak this week it was like steak frites so like really good french fries that were cooked twice which is the only way you can serve french fries in my opinion i rarely eat french fries <laughs> because nobody actually cooks them um so like really good french fries and then steak with this muscle chimichurri and then this really good lamb's oh ear God. lettuce vinaigrette um yeah my mouth is watering <laughs> so that's what yeah. you do with leftover muscles oh. like so I'll say, though, um, to add to the question, um, I think that if you any competitive restaurant should have servers who are knowledgeable on all of these allergies. So if you go to a table and someone tell you that they have these allergies, you should exactly know what on the menu is good for that specific allergy so that you can recommend to them what to choose from. Yep. Right. That's some amount of education that each waiter or server will need to get before they can actually be ready for the job. Well, we have a test that we 
issue to people who want to, like even the back weights have to take the test. And it's is it like, is it the one that you read it? Like you need to read it. How much can you memorize in in a no, matter of time? No, it's like oh. it's a written test, and it's like name three dishes from Europe and um, how they're prepared. Um, you know, what's one example of a red grape from Burgundy? And like it is a specific because you can you can teach people what you're doing, but if they don't have a particular like just general awareness of, of cuisine, like that's, that takes months to cultivate and we just don't have time right. for that. <laughs> right. They could be a dishwasher. I have a, I have a very specific, overly specific vegetarian gripe. So, which I want to talk about, <laughs> you know, you know, you know how like vegetarians are like, like especially when you want when you go out and want to order a pizza or something there's that one vegetarian and for that vegetarian you have to order like a veg pizza which is like just stay home like i don't want to eat margarita pizza for the rest <laughs> of my life this sucks like first of all why am i friends with you like <laughs> so if that is bad i like vegans are bad which is which is also like a whole other thing right because you can't but like you can't even have margarita pizza cashews. now so pizza's out of cashews don't make yeah, cheese yeah yeah, it's, it's all sorts of it's all sorts of nonsense. But then the most I've been annoyed by a very specific type of vegetarian. So Jains in India, they have the religious belief that they do not eat tubers or, or, or anything that comes from below the ground. Things that are ripped from the earth. Yeah, things that are taken from the earth. So basically it means that you, you took it from Mother Earth, right? So anything that grows in the root is a no. So... Hold on, potatoes? that means no potatoes. Yeah, no potatoes. These guys are horrible people to have at a barbecue. So uh, we we had this public speaking club <laughs> and and I was I was the guy in charge of public relations and like we were putting it together and then we went for a we, we had to shop for ingredients and all of that. And then I get a call from our club president saying, "Hey, there are a couple Janes coming." I was like, "Don't do this to me." He's like, "You're the Indian, figure it out." I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, I it's it's Singapore, right? I studied, and so they're they're all Chinese. Like pork is a pork is good. The only thing you have to worry about is you have to have halal items because there might be Muslims there, so you want to have like halal chicken, which itself is a lot of consideration. And like, of course, you do that. And then Jane show up, and they're like, "You're the Indian figure out." I was like, "This is a barbecue evening." And then what am I supposed to barbecue? <laughs> There's no meat. And the thing we used to do is maybe you'll do like, you know, some potato or something like that. That is gone. No onions, no nothing. So that day was so bad. We ended up barbecuing capsicum like it's a thing that humans do. And then just being like, <laughs> That's hilarious. Just, hand, just handing out. And because it's so bad, we felt so bad for them. The, the most we could do is have yellow capsicum skewer, green capsicum skewer, and the red capsicum skewer, <laughs> because that's all we could get that they actually ate, because no meat, no potato, nothing. Oh, that's like the worst the what extreme was the, vegetarian. Yeah. What was the name of that particular sect of diets? Oh, genes. People who... Gins. It's a religion. Yeah. Like Buddhism, Jainism is a so, religion. I feel... Contemporaries there. That, that's the, that's the no people potatoes, who don't no eat onions, things. game over. Sorry. They don't, yeah. can't <laughs> they don't eat things go. that have been ripped from the earth. Like so, the, so, 
So yeah. this is my first time hearing about anything like this, right? Never heard of it. Not eating Not anything from below the earth. Yeah. But as soon as I hear it, it makes complete sense to me. Why? So, so you have um, many doctors, like Dr. Grundy is one. He's a very oh, popular yes. guy on, on YouTube who has his own show. He's one of the biggest cardiologists in the, like, the world or something like that. But he's a very good doctor. And he has a book called... Uh, anyway, I don't remember the name of the book. But he believes in something called lectings. It is basically... A poison. Because, of course, plants are chemists. Their ability to convert sunlight into different chemicals that it can use and whatever. All it does is chemistry. And it knows how to poison predators, right? All plants basically have, not all, but many There's plants have groups. Yeah. self-defense mechanisms. Not all of them have, like, spikes that will keep preys away. Some of them use chemistry poisons that they poison thing so the, the the plants know what part of them they want you to eat right so um they want you to eat the fruits because they want to reproduce and so they make the fruit sweet so that you'll eat the fruits carry the seeds away so that they can reproduce they want you to eat the leaves not the stem and so they'll change the flavor and the different chemicals in different parts incentivizes animals and insects which parts to eat. If they wanted us to eat the roots of the plants, then they wouldn't keep the produce below the earth. They would probably put it in front of you if that was the intention for you to consume it. And so if these plants are using poison to incentivize people what parts to eat, eating food from below the earth may not be the best idea. I, I don't know if it's I, if it's I reject harmless. this theory because it totally debunks my <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. uh, yeah, that means no garlic and no that. potatoes. I would rather die from poison from plant poison. Dude, potatoes. Oh. Yeah. It's horrible. Uh, it's horrible thought, but I'm saying it's French yeah. fries, it's, yeah. mashed it potatoes, with me. baked potatoes. I'm Asian man. If you take away garlic uh, rice, what the fuck am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a friend who has pushed back on vegans is do you think we treat plants any better than we treat animals <laughs> like yeah. there's soil depletion there's like genetic modification it's like where this isn't exactly Seriously. a more humane route to go and just and because also, it doesn't have eyelashes doesn't mean like that it's any like better <laughs> um but his he has like he told me once that I haven't fact checked this so I might be wrong that that there's like no animal in the wild that eats kale. <laughs> like that that's something that like every like grazing thing is like, yeah, no. That's like, hilarious. No on the kale. If it's true, that's funny. <laughs> One thing I that hangs me up about, sorry. No, I'm just saying kale is basically all water though. I think they say something like 90, what percentage of kale is water? Well, you oh. have to like cook it. It's just so fine. Like it's a, an aggressive type of fiber. Um, and I think a lot of people have digestion issues with it because it's like, you have to wit, like massage it or like cook it in duck fat. It's just like, I don't, I find kale to be miserable. I'm not a kale girl. <laughs> Before kale became mainstream, it's like, I want to say like 97% of all kale. So like, let's say mainstream, I don't know, let's say 2000. Yeah, I'd say 2000. <laughs> Yeah, like the vast, the very vast majority of all kale was used as pizza buffet liners. 
not for eating purposes. It was just for presentation. To cover the ice. (laughs) Yeah. But one thing that hangs me up about vegans and and listeners, I hope this is good content. If you're vegan, love to hear your comments or read your comments. But one thing that hangs me up about vegans is the milk and honey situation. Right. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't think the way we are producing milk is the best way to produce milk. But like milk and honey are the two things that arguably aren't hurting anyone. Again, aside from mass agriculture and they're naturally reproducing. It's why I think why. (laughs) Why? Why? (laughs) Um, Especially honey. I mean, we're not. I don't know. Save the bees. Oh, don't vegans don't have honey. Tattoo, oh, like, animal they products. They don't eat no honey. Oh, oh and they yeah, don't eat yeah. gelatin because it. So, like, you can't. The, no marshmallows. Or there's like a weird vegan alternative to gelatin that you can use for marshmallow. But like, there's a whole. And the whole eth- the ethics, I guess, behind ethical vegans, other than like vegans who are just trying to, you know, arguably get healthier or whatever they're trying to do. But the ethical vegans, the whole idea but is like I no would, harm. I was vegan for three months and I don't know how you could do that to get healthier because it's impossible to get protein without process. Like there's so many fried things and like these cauliflower puffs. A friend of mine had these cauliflower right. puffs and I was like, did the cauliflower consent to that? Cause I don't actually see any cauliflower <laughs> in the product that is before me. It's like a Cheeto, but we're calling it like a healthy vegan food. I, I don't uh, know what happened to it. <laughs> right. I mean, I just, yeah, I but just you want can to mention get, you, no, uh, I, I was just saying Indian cuisine at least is partly equipped to handle uh, the vegan demand because we cook a lot of stuff, Agreed. like, especially in the North, Lentils. a lot of them are vegetarians. I mean, down yeah. South, we are heavy meat eaters because we have a lot of fish and pisciculture and all of that. So there's a huge history of meat eating in the South. But there, are, there is like, there are a lot of vegetarian restaurants and all of that. And if you go North, the percentage of people who are pure vegetarians will not even touch an but egg is, is very high. But yeah. But most of them do take milk, yeah? Like they like take milk. They take milk. And... They take milk. No, I'm just saying that if you if you went to a restaurant and said I'm a vegan, for you to have a healthy option, Indian cuisine at least can provide for you because there are a lot of like yeah. cereals that they cook, like all sorts of lentils and there are so many variations in that. So as long as you tell them to not put ghee in it, it's vegan. And it's, you know, it's, you put, you yeah, put that with rice and you have your protein intake, but in cuisines, which are very dependent on meat, making the decision that, you know what, I'm not going to eat meat without fully realizing that, you know, there is a certain compositional structure to it is, is, is quite like problematic. Like you said, like protein, yeah, where are you going to I'm, get that? I'm, what are you substituting it then? Yeah. So I, I, I just checked because you guys were confusing me just now. So th- yeah. those aren't real vegans then, because wh- when I look up vegans here, it says a vegan diet excludes animals and all their byproducts. Yeah, that they're means vegetarian. Vegans... The, so the vegan vegans, Indian, Northern no. Indian. So it kind of goes like, yeah, vegan, s- super extreme, vegetarian, like the ovo-lacto crowd. Yeah, that... but but. Just now, you were saying that these vegans do take milk. They drink milk. But this is no, saying no, that no. they do not eat. Oh, no, no, no. She no. said Indians, Indian vegetarians, not vegans. Indian vegetarians drink milk, Daniel said. Oh. Oh, no. So Indian... Clarif- e- yeah, they mostly do still take milk, even if they don't do eggs. Vegetarians. Vegetarian. Yeah. Indian, this... 
particular why region of why wouldn't vegetarians take eggs though well I, okay i can see yeah. why they don't take eggs but milk okay i got it but vegans we agree don't drink yes. milk or anything nothing okay. no, or honey. no honey yeah okay. which is like no. the most surprising i love honey well, and like, again, like going back to that, like, how is this different than maple syrup? Like we're taking this, you know, the thing that is the byproduct. It just is, I don't know, when my friend Jihad was like, are we treating the plants well better? <laughs> yeah. Wait, yeah, where, does, exactly. where, does maple syrup, where does maple syrup come from? It, well, uh, it, it doesn't come from an animal, but you're like taking the byproduct of a plant and it's like the same sort of taking something away from that happens Mother with honey. Yeah. yeah. You're disrupting a natural process. Um but it's, a, it's was, really from a maple tree. Yeah. Okay. I was told that animal, I mean, plants, of course, I don't think anyone would deny that there are living things, living beings. And there are some plants that actually make a sound when they're being hurt or like potatoes. attacked. <laughs> <laughs> they make a sound? Well, if you like plug in whatever those like uh, electron, yeah. yeah, like... You can like make a clock with a potato or like power a clock. Yeah, there's energy in them. Yeah. We did that. Anyways. That was fun. And I did want to come back. So also they're saying that basically even the lawn grass, the grass that's on your lawn, if you're cutting it, it releases a chemical, a gas that you can they're smell. Crying. No, that, like, right. No, no, what it is is that they're communicating to other grass to let them know. That they're being attacked. You're about to die. That's like, what. The, that's what. That's. And we got walked down the sidewalk. Like I love the smell Yankee of fresh candle, cut grass. fresh cut grass. <laughs> right. So what happens is that basically, like, something about the nutrients or something that the plants have, they take it from the leaves and store it lower down into the stem, assuming that it's going to be attacked. So other plants react to that scent that being sent out, sent out by the plant that's being harmed. So they communicate, this, they work this as a is team. A, yeah, there's a very real mechanism. That, there's, this, there's this question I once came across in a quiz where there's this particular type of African plant that giraffes eat that uh, when they bite into those leaves, lets out a certain enzyme or chemical so that all the other, other trees uh, that are downwind start emitting you know, poisonous uh, chemicals into their uh, leaves so that it becomes inedible for the wow. giraffe so if it starts eating on this end it because the everything will be carried downwind so the question was so what do the giraffes do i think it was giraffes what do the giraffes do to go around this particular natural process what do you guys think a giraffe does to go around this go upwind exactly exactly so they <laughs> eat this oh, upwind nice. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly what they do. They eat it upwind so that the others in the line are not poisoned. So they specifically eat in that direction so that it doesn't poison soon enough that it poisons before its meal is over. I don't remember oh, which plant, but this is a it. specific procedure that happens. There was one part of the article that made me think of you, Alejandro, just being our Spanish-speaking friend here. Oh, I but, know! Right, yeah. like they, they. <laughs> Which means that was so funny. How are you, valued comrade? I hope all is what well. does that like, actually mean? So funny. So it so means like me, Yeah, go yeah, for you it, go. go for it. No, you go. Well, so so hey Mericon, Mericon, um, for lack of better translation, Pagan. is like 
yeah, faggot, yeah. Um, okay. which is like a terrible word, but it's like, you know, in this like raunchy back of house, like everyone's got like, you know, ex-convicts and drug addicts, and, right? Like you just feel like, hey, Mary, go and chup us me huevos. Like it just means like suck my balls. But the English oh translation God. being like, hi, hello, valued mm. comrade. Like I hope all is well. Like just that <laughs> beautiful. Are we talking about kitchen oh Spanish? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just yeah. like the it's intensity. Oh, do do you have, do you have any uh, Spanish speakers in your we don't hear, but in Denver we did. And it was funny, like we had primo, numero uno, and primo, numero dos. And then this, the old guy that came to clean on, on Sundays was Tortuga. Tortuga. Because he was like, he took the whole day to clean. Tortuga is a turtle? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turtles, And so yeah. primo is like his cousin. So, cousin. Um, but one of, actually, one of the founding members of the, the restaurant that we had in Denver was um, Javier. And he was Javi, like he was just amazing. He left to like manage an apartment complex, I think. Um, but he he was Mexican and it's, you know, but I love that we kind of went this direction. I was thinking of it as I was walking back, like Anthony Bourdain was a huge advocate for um, like Mexican workers. Yeah, um, immigrant rights, and for sure. Immigrant rights and, and also... Like what I part of what I loved about his show, when you look at it versus like anything that Gordon Ramsay has done, is he was truly like curious and exploring it. There's another chef, um, Rick Bayless, who does a lot of stuff in Mexico actually, and he does it from this like standpoint of like just sheer curiosity and like a, a like I want to eat in your you know your abuelitas you know table mm -hmm. and like tell me about the empanadas and and not coming in with this well I learned in culinary school blah 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 um and yeah I think that it's something that is challenging um to manage sort of like do you hire people that aren't you know technically legal how do you stand up for them um and there but is also like our sorry no just it, it's it's a it's an interesting sort of thing but they are like an integral part of the food industry that's what i was just about to say like Who? we mexican immigrants. workers in the u.s are immigrants like yeah. immigrants yeah um but it, <laughs> like most of your food would not be delivered to your table and much less to the restaurant itself if it wasn't for immigrant workers right and so it's yeah. like this conundrum of like, wait, oh, don't hire wait, illegal workers, but also like we can't wait, function wait, without them. I'm I'm having a problem with, with, with the conflation of illegal immigrants and immigrants. Immigrants and illegals are like, I think, a slightly different topic, isn't it? Well, there's a lot of migrant work. So if you want to go back to like sourcing, like a lot of produce in the U.S. is harvested by migrant workers. And I I think that there's a fair amount of there might be like a single documented person, but not like the whole thing. Like, I don't know how the whole thing works, but I know that like my mom was at a school that had lots of migrant families that was, that would come like seasonally. Um, and several of them were deported um, when things started to get a little more strict. Um, yeah. So, so I think of course, and in New York, I think there are a lot of, dishwashers and other like positions that are hard to fill bus boys and yeah. yeah i would think that everyone would agree that having 
a combination of cultures like, you know, Little China or, or Little Mexico or places where you can go to experience different cultures in your own country does add to the beauty of, you know, life to be able to experience these different things at home. It adds value to your community. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe we shouldn't go down this road right now, but I mean, if I want to know if he was advocating for illegal immigrants or the rights of immigrants, it's, it's, it's a slightly different conversation, but anyway. I see your point. I would say both because he was advocating for these, if they were illegal for them to gain citizenship the in an easier, right. Yeah. And, but once they, you know, for maybe some of his workers, kitchen staff that maybe already had some kind of residency or visa or variation of citizenship. Um, he was only advocating for advocating for rights for them. wasn't he? Absolutely. No, later yeah. in his career, he was very, very vocal about um, immigration oh, okay. policies. Yeah. Okay, okay. But not the, in the, the article. Not I was just going to say his, okay. his shows were so good. So, uh, like, A Cook's Tour was his uh, his first one. I didn't. I caught the tail end of that, but uh, the, I spent most of my time with no reservations. No reservations. No yeah. reservations. Like I grew up with that, and of course, I think I was in college when um, what is it? Parta Unknown came out, and then thinking about this guy who was on like now a CNN correspondent was a wild way. Like I think he had an incredible career, and it all started with this one article. Right, like, Bourdain was you know a the CNN story correspondent. About the article? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Um, uh, the show was called Parts Unknown, and it was on CNN. It wasn't article, like he's, I read the. Yeah, interesting. Oh, just the backstory in the article, I think, is hilarious. Do you know the backstory in the article that his mom, Anthony yeah. Bourdain's mom, worked at um, the New York Times as some like something, and the the editor who published his article in the New York. In the New Yorker, the editor's wife worked with Anthony Bourdain's mom, and she brought this article. And she's like, "My son wrote this article. Will you pass it to your husband?" And she was like, "Sure, sure." So <laughs> he's like, "Well," and, and he wrote this great article about how, like, when you open an envelope, you never know what to expect, and sometimes amazing content comes from the most, you know, unusual of sources, and and how delighted, you know. So it's just so funny that you know he was this this kid with behavioral problems in private school angry and um yeah i think it's it's so curious to see how how the whole thing started and then he did he became like you know i I was reading something also that i think was super true that talked about how he was his show was the only show that went as into as many places in the world as it did without a political agenda without a sort of like um expose he was just interested in sitting with people and the way that he did that, if you if you haven't seen his show, I highly recommend it because it sh- it shows sort of how he embodies a curiosity about food. He want he tasted anything. I remember him eating like a penis soup. He was like, "Well, here we go." They say it's good. Oh and, yeah, like, he'd even, eat like, anything. Huge, like <laughs> he'd eat anything because there's a humility in that. I remember there's a scene in like Indiana Jones and in the Temple of Doom where like. She's like, I don't want to eat that there. I don't remember where they landed. He's oh, yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. is more than these people eat in a week. Eat it. And she's like, no, thank you. You can have it. And he was like, you're embarrassing me. 
and like, <laughs> you know, this willingness to say, okay, I'm willing to see if it tastes good. Um, and for the rest of my life, I will never understand people who, you know, you come across them anywhere, I guess, but just like street food. Some people will like refuse to eat at like an open air, you know, little like corner stand. And I just have like a specific memory is like, no, you, those are the places you want to go. Like if there's a line, that's the place you want to be because these, you know, mom and pop like street stalls, they're not making a living by poisoning people. Like go where the people go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And there's this one excerpt that I just loved about him describing what it means to be a chef. Um, And he goes, you got to be a mom, a dad, drill sergeant, detective, psychiatrist, and priest to a crew of opportunistic mercenary hooligans whom (laughs) you must protect from the nefarious and often foolish strategies of owners. And when I read that, I was just like, oh, a pirate. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's, That's what I was thinking all along. A band of misfits, illegal, sometimes criminal people who are aspirational, who... You know, that, that's what it sounds like to me. Uh, yeah. It, in a way, it's like, for me, it evokes this like, ooh, yeah. Like, what, especially reading like, uh, you know, Kitchen Confidential too. Like, Anthony had this way of just being direct, being salty. You know, he had some, he was jaded. He had some character to him. And like, I, I guess a question for y'all, and it's a bit of a plea, listeners, please help me out. I'm wondering, are there any other writers or specifically food writers that have this similar harshness and personality that also balances, I mean, as we've talked about, like this kind of humanity, that's what I'm looking for. And I feel like we're, there's been a void since Anthony Bourdain's death. I have a suggestion I mean, for someone. Or like chefs that have. Oh, I was thinking there. like food writers or just writers in general, like I just love and crave and, and somewhat identify with this, yeah, harsh, salty, and yet humble and caring personality. Like I want to be able, I want to be a person that can traverse those two extremes. Yeah. A a chef that I found interesting. I mean, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't listened to a lot of Bodine to say this person is specifically like that. But uh, the chef at Osteria Francescana, his name is Massimo Bottura. He's an Italian chef. Uh, it was one of like the world's top restaurants. That man has mm-hmm. a way of speaking about Italian food and like Modena and Italy. And he talks about jazz. And the way he talks about life in general is bloody spectacular. So uh, he has, uh, there's, a, there's a show on Netflix called Chef's Table. The very oh. first episode is Massimo Bottura. So you can check him out. I, w- I was going to say, though, Kat, that I think you just need to find any writer, food writer, would do. Because I think the lingo of the, the cursing and how they interpret that cursing is a normal pirate behavior. Mm. Pirates curse all the time, and yet still they understand that translation of, you know. What was the second? Uh, here, I have it pulled up. Hey, Baboso, put some more brown jizz on the fire and check your meese before the Sioux comes back, <laughs> comes back there and fucks you in the culo, which means please reduce some additional demi-glaze, brother, and re-examine your mise en place because the Sioux chef is concerned about your state of readiness. <laughs> like, I love, 
<laughs> just it's the- so bad. Like I remember the my brother was in this the corporate kitchen that actually like got him like good like back into in, like loving cooking, and they they had like an it was like sort of they worked for Google Maps I think so it was like this company that had like this posh kitchen with no budget for their employees and they could do whatever they wanted. Food cost wasn't an issue. So they, they like, they did like reindeer heart at Christmas and like rabbit at Easter. They like, it was like this dark, hilarious sense of humor. And I remember they had the health department come and Aaron was like, so they went into the cooler and found this thing. And he's like, do you want to explain to me what this is? And it was just labeled Satan's piss test. (laughs) <laughs> and it was like a hot sauce they were working on. Um, <laughs> but that's like how it had been like shoved in the walk-in. And, you know, it is like, I don't know. It's like these, this band of, and, and then you have like the girls that are in the kitchen, which are hilarious. Cause they're usually either like the pastry girls or they're like, like just like hardworking, like get out of my way. Like, you know, these badasses. It is such an interesting thing. But what I was going to say when you were saying you wish you could see more, like Gordon Ramsay, I think, is such an interesting character because if you watch, like, he's on TikTok with his daughter and he is, like, this lovely, like, funny, yeah, it's hilarious, like, willing to do, like, daughters. the dance. Yeah, Aww. and, like, I would love to see more of that. But his show, like, he has curated this particular persona of just being a dick. Um, and it's not, like, a dick who's making people you. cry. He's like, like a dick who's like, <laughs> I hope you knew what you needed to learn before you got here because I'm just gonna like belittle you. Um, I have in a, not yeah. in a very in a long while, but when that first came out, I was in love, just enthralled because it really is like there's something so satisfying. I don't know, like I guess I identify as like a project manager. You know, I love executing and getting shit done and as y'all know and now the listeners know i love food and (laughs) though you know i don't see myself owning a restaurant in the future like i don't think that's really what i want to do but like part of my love language is food and that's also like in a giving way like when i cook for friends or family like i love cooking for you know for people and like that's a you know just a way that i care for people and i'm you know, really grateful that I grew up in a household where cooking, my, it wasn't just my mom cooking, right? Like it wasn't just like this feminine ideal, which of course like cooking world kind of defies because most chefs are of course male, right? It's this like male occupied profession, but you know, my dad was very much in the kitchen at home and very much, you know, making snacks for us or like, you know, grilling, of course, being a more masculine activity, whatever. But I got to, I don't know. I feel very privileged when it came to food and, and like my exposure to cooking was started really early on um, in Texas. For anyone listening, there's this uh, a grocery store chain, of course, called H-E-B. But the the nicer version of H-E-B is called Central Market. It's kind of the equivalent to Whole Foods. And I went to cooking classes when I was like 10 years old at Central Market. And so I got to learn in a professional kitchen, like how to use a knife and, you know, how to make fried ice cream, like, and and just like really strange things. And, you know, I saw this kind of collection, of course, it was like other kids, it was like a summer camp or whatever, but like, it was 
it's a different art form. And I think we've talked about previously on episodes is like the one of the few art forms that goes away. I think yep. there's an episode, Daniel, you talked about on uh, when you're in college, the uh, monks that did the sand drawing, right? And then they yep. intentionally brush yeah, it away. Gone. Like it's, that's how I feel about food. It's like, it it is the time and place and space that can make all the difference. And, and I'm convinced food is meant to be shared. It is meant to bring people together. And yeah, I, I know I sound like a broken so, record, but <laughs> so, so I can say, I can say that for me that, so there've been multiple times in my life where I've had like, like I had to choose between girlfriends I don't like to to cheat around. Wow. I don't like to. All I don't right. like to. I don't like to be. I, I can't. It, it's too mind consuming to have more than one girl's juggling at the same time. So I like to choose if I'm if I have multiple options. I like to choose between them. And whenever I'm choosing, it usually comes down to who cooks the best. Like the sex part, we can <laughs> we can work out differently. That part we can you know communication and we get that part done. But the food part of it. Like, it's it's a big deal. I, like, Kat just called it a love language. I mean, I think that's a good way of describing it. And they have a saying that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows that saying, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean. But it's, it's the same it's, for women, it's too. Like, thing. come on, feed me. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Oh, my God. Yeah, and what's, what, what, what's that thing, though? That, that thing about um, my gosh. men around the grill. Is that is that? like an evolutionary thing where everything dangerous was left to the men. And so grilling, being around a fire just ended up being something that men do. Is that, I is that how it happened? I think it might be an evolutionary perspective on it. I could see that. I know it's, I mean, Alejandro, like I- Or it might also be the most low effort and most performative <laughs> uh, way of uh, cooking almost nothing and showing and looking like you did something, maybe, you know, that is also a male hilarious. privilege. Um, <laughs> it's literally yeah, like, called there's money something in the about grill. meat and masculinity, right? Like, there's <laughs> yeah. some connection. Yeah, it's true. I hate cooking meat. It's my least favorite thing to do is to deal with animal protein. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, but I will tell you, like, when I was pregnant, Adam made me like, I remember one night I wanted like a grilled cheese sandwich was just like, like, you know, quintessential, like a thing. Comfort and Adam food, made yeah. me a flight of grilled cheese sandwiches. And one of them was like cheddar with bacon. One Oof. of them was like Monterey Jack with green chilies. One of them was brie with pear. And like, and then he brought them out in like these little slivers on a plate, like a rectangular plate. He loves plating things. Adam has a thing that he says, you eat with your eyes first. And so if it's beautiful, Guys, don't fall for this. Adam is a chef. Oh These are unrealistic <laughs> expectations for us. Don't fall for this. <laughs> he, the man's a professional chef. It's true. And then the first meal, the first meal he made me when we came home from the hospital with Monty, he made me steak with mushrooms and, and he mm. called it umami for the new mommy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, too so, cute. So I think my my mother had a similar situation where so my father was a chef when they met, and um he's been the one who does the cooking throughout 
most of the relationship on Sundays, the big occasions, he's the, the chef, the cook, right? And there was one time when he was like, hey, I'd like to get Sundays off. I'd like to stop cooking now. <laughs> and my mother was like, ah, that, no, no, no. That, 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 that was the whole marriage arrangement thing. <laughs> like, that's, that's why you're here. It's in the that's contract. not going to change. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, that's, <laughs> that's an offense. Like, that's, that's non-negotiable. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's still in the kitchen now. So <laughs> oh, I don't that's think hilarious. Well. <laughs> it's in the contract. <laughs> it's 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 the marriage contract, yeah. I we've always said that I because I have a chemistry background, I love baking. Like I love mm. ratios and proportions and and like the phrase season to taste like strikes fear in my heart. Like I don't like the like guess and art and like yeah. So it's I, I do the things that involve precision. And Adam does the things that involve like art and it, it works okay. Does any of you watch Uncle Roger on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys know who Uncle no. Roger yeah, is? Yeah, that, that's cool. It's, it's so. an Asian, Asian guy pretending to be the uncle. The character yeah. is called Uncle Roger. But so basically, no. he's, Asian? he's this, this comedian. He's this Chinese comedian from Malaysia. He's Malaysian. He's Chinese by race. His name is Nigel Ng. Uh, and he does this caricature of, of uh, wearing like this very fluorescent orange shirt and he calls himself <laughs> Uncle Roger and he talks with a very thick Chinese accent and then he criticizes people making Asian food like there's this one video of Jamie Oliver making chicken fried rice and then he puts chili jam in it and he loses absolutely loses his shit seeing chili jam in asian That's fried rice and then and then he always talks about don't measure it my ancestors are crying why are you making such horrible packet rice and then he's like just use feeling use feeling so he has this like <laughs> accent he keeps doing he's far he's very hilarious yeah I look it up uncle roger <laughs> uncle roger like he also has like these sketches of being in like Asian food, um, let's call it like trucks, like those food trucks, and like there's oh, vegan yeah. people oh, yeah. or vegetarian people coming. Like, do you have these without this and that? And he just makes fun of them. <laughs> so like, one of his like, famous lines yeah. is like he's he's serving at an Asian uh, restaurant that his uh, friend owns called Mei Mei in London, and then some guy comes up and says uh, he has a nut allergy. He says, <laughs> "Why so put?" You're afraid of yeah. nut. <laughs> he makes these horrible, horrible jokes. And then he's like, when I in Malaysia, I scared of earthquake. You scared of nut? Why so pussy? And then he keeps doing this. <laughs> so there was a joke like that happened online. I won't, I won't tell y'all who did it. Because, you know, but anyway. So there was this guy who yeah. was in an argument. And then he took out his inhaler and started spraying his inhaler. I said, dude, you're such yeah. a you're you you're like so you're afraid of air. You can't even <laughs> yeah. manage air, but you want to argue with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, we should Uncle that, Roger. If you ever hear this, you should come. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Roger, be a guest yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> it's so like I love I what I do love about cooking shows is that you love it. You know, like do get these like person out like the julia oh child is such a great example yes. just like her ridiculousness and and then there was a like a pbs show that we Jan can cook have you seen this it's like a i don't know what his he's hilarious he's an asian 
Asian guy, and it's a great cooking show. But at the end, he always does this: "If Yan can cook, so can you." Um, and he leaves <laughs> you with like this really complex recipe. He's a Chinese. Um, I have to. That's talking of Asian. Yeah. Talking of Asian kitchens, there's this stand-up bit that has been going around recently, where they're like, you know, all these fancy places have like twelve items, and they have twenty stuff. You know what I like? <laughs> An Asian place. Their menu has two hundred and twenty items, and there's like one guy cooking in the back, and he's not even a <laughs> chef. He's some guy's uncle from Vietnam yeah. that came over <laughs> and never left. <laughs> yeah. I was the name oh. of he, He's oh. so funny. Sure. He was in this show, uh, Silicon Valley. We will. That I yes. very. That's a yeah, great yeah, yeah. show. He's, he's he's an Asian comedian. <laughs> he's he's so good, like very good. Um, we should okay, do so an episode about jokes. Oh, yeah. and like... All right. So, so a fun question now. So um, I heard a professor speaking recently and he was like in a university. I didn't hear the professor. I heard the story. And he asked a class of like 100 students, right? Like if you were born in 19, it was mainly white students, like all white people, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, if you were born in the 1600s, something like that, or 19, <laughs> some, some like 1800s, I hadn't right? started yet. <laughs> let's, let's go 1700s. If you were born in 1700s, how many of you here would have been an abolitionist? And mm. of course, everyone in the class raised their hands. And he said, he said, well, y'all know that that's not, that's, that's not the, the case. No. Well, abolitionists did, there were some, the Jesuits, and you had some abolitionists around. But he's saying that the percentage of people in every society who were abolitionists were really small. Because back then, something that is common in society all around the world, which was slavery, something that has been historical was normal to people. And so for you to be able to see morality in the moment, in something that's commonplace, he's saying that, Obviously, it can't be true that everyone in this room would have been an abolitionist just based on percentages, right? And so his, his lesson was that morality is something that grows over time. It's something that we learn as people. And that morality, we all have it within us to be immoral. And, you know, something like that, some more complex message. But my question is this now. Right now, we all think it commonplace to eat meat. It's okay to keep these animals in these inhumane conditions. I mean, I hear about um, veal. That's like, that's like the tender cow meat where cows aren't allowed to stand. Babies. They have to be calves. Yeah. But they're right, babies. they're babies. It's calf meat, right? They're ba- they are, they're the, but they're also the bastard industry yeah. above the milk industry. Like they're a byproduct of sorry, having heifer. artificially inseminated. Yeah, it's it's atrocious. Anyway, yeah. go ahead, Donovan. So these cows are yes. prevented from standing up because if they stand up, they will develop that muscular structure. Right, and their heads are yeah, restricted. Little- right, and that's their lives. They have to be kept lying down. This kind of treatment that we have towards animals, um, may become the issue of generation where are we know where are we, where are we gen what what's what's the generation now z that's coming up gen z, z. 
Okay, so we're going to start back from A next. Is it, is it Gen A that comes <laughs> yeah, after? Yeah, yeah. After Z-A, Gen Z, it goes Gen to Gen Z-A. Alpha. Okay. Gen A, so, Gen A. So, so Gen A may be the generation that looks back at us as those, just like we look back at slave owners and people who supported slavery as being immoral. They may stay, start tearing down our pictures, like take grandpa off the wall. He also ate animals too. It may I become think- the moral issue of the next generation. Yeah. When, and the thing is, are we that are we those people pass, though? Yeah. Are we immoral? Is that that's the question? Is eating animals yeah. that genocidal issue that people may make it out to be in the future? When, whenever that time comes to pass and people, you know, start pulling down statues and you know pictures of people, all I want for myself is that <laughs> in the picture I'm holding a good tandoori chicken leg piece. So I that it's finally, it's at least <laughs> worth it. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, if anyone has a serious answer, you can go now. Yes. So, wait, wait. So one, one thing before you go. So another joke for that, Vikat, is that there was a guy I saw like a, one of those animal rights people say, you're eating meat. Do you know that that piece of chicken was, was someone's daughter? That was Yeah, the bucket joke. I know. Yeah. Go on, go on, go on, do it, do it. Do it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> He but said, like, it. I yeah. haven't heard it. Yeah. So the joke is that someone said to him, that chicken that you're eating was someone that was another animal's daughter. You're eating someone's child. And he said, yeah, that's why I got the bucket. Like I got the whole That's family. why I got the like, family bucket. So I keep them all <laughs> together. I, yeah, exactly. All oh, right. <laughs> Separating <laughs> them. The Something family like bucket. Yeah. The family bucket. <laughs> Oh, cows don't live in the wild what's gonna like you're just gonna like get rid of cows like are they no longer gonna be a species on earth like that there are animals that are bred for food that these are purpose bred animals by that by that logic then slave masters who bred people on their plantation those were slave people those weren't like free people those were people bred for for work i kind you of. know what i really love i love how in this uh, in this episode like donovan has the most progressive take and we are the ones who are like sticking to the more traditional <laughs> i don't know if it's progressive no, it makes I'm sense though it makes sense what you're I'm saying imagining what the progressive thought pattern yeah. will be in the future i also hesitate to <laughs> i hesitate to draw parallels or like to equate or draw analogous examples between slavery and animal treatment, because we weren't, as far as I know, slaves weren't being eaten. No, but they were being treated in an inhumane way for someone else's benefit. So I guess along the lines, I similarly, I think it's a really interesting thought experiment and I don't know I think what would change first is our treatment of animals, right? And I, this is what I studied in my undergrad thesis was like how corporations are exploiting not just our animal populations, but our, our vegetable, like the, the way we're agriculting, uh, growing and, and collecting, you know, just a single strain of corn, right? Like, we, yeah, exactly. Like we are, it's our treatment of the earth needs to be addressed, I think, maybe before our treatment of animals or they're, they're coincided. Like the two are connected. Um, and what I would specifically talking about, like, you know, us eating meat, I think it'll be the way we treat animals will change first before there's like a massive or maybe cultural 
shift away from me. And I'm going to take like, I guess, maybe a provocative position. There's there's evidence to suggest, and granted, this is based on geographical and, and hereditary dispositions, but there's evidence to suggest that we're not meant to live meat-free lifestyles, that vegetarianism does not work well for everyone. And that can actually be detrimental to certain dispositions, right? And, and to counter that, some people you're just like the spectrum. Like if you want to call vegan one end, there's some people out there advocating, yeah, full meat diets. And again, based on your genetic dispositions, maybe that works for you, but that's not going to work for everyone. So I think if we can find this healthy balance that is respectful of the origins of these plants and animals, that would be my happy, my happy solution. Yeah. So I'll answer both of the things that you just said. So the first one that you said before was um, about animals not being the same as humans. And so oh, in regards it's to slavery, not kind of yeah. fair to... Right. So I'd, I'd, the argument to that that I'd make, devil's advocate type thing, is that um, in order for people to have held slaves, they also tried to discredit their humanity. This is true to say that they are less than human beings and then that's what makes it okay for us to enslave them. So is this, is maybe, is that argument or way of saying that animal lives are less valuable than those of human beings to give ourselves permission to then consume them, as in to treat them in that way. And to your second argument about some people needing to eat meat, I understand that maybe Caucasians, um, who I heard uh, is this maybe you guys can correct me I, I'm just saying what I've heard I heard that Caucasians um, spent most of their time in colder conditions and so farming wasn't really what Caucasians did for food it was mainly eating meat that's the evolutionary process of Caucasian people and so and so because evolutionarily their bodies developed more to consume meat because especially how even meat is consumed. As far as I'm concerned, in Jamaica, we don't know about eating meat rare. I've, I've seen people eat meat rare when I went to Japan and it was crazy to me, all right? So it's not something that we do because I believe black people were mainly farmers and we're accustomed to cooking meat in a different way from people who grew up in a more colder climate who probably didn't use fire as you know cook maybe that's how the raw meat thing i don't know but anyway the point is those people who evolved under those conditions hence need to eat meat now due to their evolutionary biology i'm not sure if that i'm not sure the justification to say that because you evolved eating meat hence it is moral I'm not sure. No, I was just thinking along those lines of preservation. Um, that's why a lot are the spiciest foods globally. You know, your different culinary disciplines, the spicier foods gravitate towards the equator because spices were used as preservatives. So in Jamaica, right, you have Jamaican right. jerk over in India, like Southern India is way spicier than Northern India. Right. Uh, but on, And curry is a part yep. of the Indian culture. It, it's a preservative. Like it's all yep. as preservative. And that, that also... That also shows like culture's uh, tolerance and heritage with respect to alcohol because it's about water availability and do you have water that is immediately con- 
that you can immediately consume out of like if the water source near you is something that you can directly consume or if the winters are too cold if you're indoors al- alcohol beers last longer than water so that also has to do with why certain cultures can handle wines and beers and all of that and like for example indians there's no, a lot like, german and me as part and of drinking. the heritage we drink a very different type of alcohol <laughs> drinking beer for a long time so, yeah exactly exactly so from what from what i'm hearing right here maybe we could make the argument that let's say caucasian so, so like jordan peterson who only eats steaks and his daughter who had many physical problems and who cured her problems by eating steak maybe it is that some especially caucasian people their bodies need to consume meat due to the evolutionary Another process. thing to consider Maybe in this equation, may- though, too, is the quality. Because, like, when you look at, like, milks or meats or whatever, like, the quality, you'll have a range of quality. And a lot of these products, primarily lower end, like some things that are being mass produced, will have an enormous amount of growth hormones, too. So I, I'm curious. I don't know enough. I'm just thinking about Jordan Peterson's daughter. I don't know enough, but I'm just curious, like, if she changed her diet to, like, you know, more organic or, like, locally sourced products. Okay. Yeah, I I think it's just steaks. Maybe that's one way we could justify it morally. Because, you see, slavery was a luxury for people who could enslave other people. But if it's based on survival that you consume animal protein i think it kind of defeats the moral moral like i don't see how morality applies if it's necessary right for your survival like for ooh, that's a very tricky argument to make that's a slippery slippery slope slope. if it's something that you have to do to survive then maybe that's one way to justify it because that's what separates it from slavery it's an interesting i really appreciated the question the the thought experiment there there are some white people that said that we had to enslave because we can't do all this work to survive and we would die doing this work in the sun that's where the slippery slope is (laughs) hence we needed slavery so it's it's a it's a topic that i will refute that or i just that the person's whatever theory but my general philosophy when it comes to food and i don't always follow it because i love food too much but like if, if you can gravitate towards like quality over quantity generally you're going to be in a better better position in the long run my my approach to thinking about this has always been i mean now now that when donovan is talking about the very industrialized procurement of meat and all of that when i think about it in the american context of like how cows are grown in very industrialized mm. setups and all of that now i'm like oh wait okay that is that is something to consider but I've always, in the Indian context, I have thought about it as, of course, poultry is grown in, you know, these small spaces and all of that. Uh, Like, I've always thought of this as, I I never thought this is, you know, moral or it is not, I never thought that, you know, this is an animal, so it's not a life. I've always known it's a life, but uh, the only problem I had with like a very everyone has to be vegan sort of argument or a very everyone has to be vegetarian sort of argument is that food is something that is very personal to a person and you can't go around poking someone else's plate. Like that to me comes across as very oh, yeah. indecent when Agreed. people like are like, no, oh, all these people, you know, eating and I, I understand. I understand. But but Donovan has a very good point. Like, you know, is this. Is this like, you know, moral and all of that? But 
food i i like as far as i've gotten is that it's a very personal choice and especially in the indian context when you know the very high caste vegetarians you know tell people that oh you can't eat for some communities that is their only like it's not like they're eating overly industrialized this thing they are eating their livestock that is all they get they cannot afford your very like yeah. you know 10 types of pulses and spices and all of that this is what they have to eat if they live on the coast the fish they catch is what they have to eat so you bringing especially the the very upper castes are always vegetarian in india the brahmins are uh-huh. always pure vegetarian they call themselves pure vegetarian because vegetarianism is seen as something pure implying the others are not which is a very again so so, so, so they can that's why in an indian context i was always like no no people saying others people you know getting involved in others plates is like a very indecent thing to do but now i understand like there is a broader problem of how much the animal goes through blah 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 but that is not the same in uh, uh indian context so but the, i understand the problem so the, i i see it the in the bourgeois rich now. people can afford to be moral maybe it's a privilege yeah they yeah. can afford to be vegetarian right. <laughs> also because they have more choices yeah and like the weird impossible meat which is you're going to so eat it though And, no. and 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 you're going to are you going to eat the bugs too a homestead so get over it yeah i believe not, in the bug future yeah insects not <laughs> eating bill gates fake meat like hard pass. you don't have to believe in it you're going to do it because the news is going to tell you you're a bad person unless you do chapulines what do you think alejandro yeah i know you've eaten a fair share of chapulines in your life eating the bugs with fake meat like that's that's a proposal to save the planet i mean why do we want to eat the bugs high in protein like, the bugs are also no 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 i i understand the reason but i'm also like i don't think we're solving the the ideal like the moral issue or the, the issue, issue is saving the planet because Alejandro. bugs are also part of the ecosystem yeah yeah but they're also part of the ecosystem and they also play a a, game, a, a role in the ecosystem it's just like same with animals right like we want to save the planet so therefore let them live like bugs also play their part on but they don't release the methane and the, the, um, the, you know the amount of chemicals that they put in the atmosphere they don't affect climate change as much as the bigger larger animals yeah the water well sure but How is Donovan the guy talking about greenhouse gas? Know, What's happening today? I know the What argument. The hell? Listen. How you might be having I a turn. I have to know both sides of every argument to do it. So I can play devil's advocate on any topic really. Like like I, see, I don't know. I like I'm not against it. I'm also I don't think if the problem we're trying to address is climate change, I don't think this is a big part because for example, water is not the biggest contributor right now but if we start trying to create uh fake meat pff, the amount of water like the the percentage and of the energy water playing a role into cli- into the climate change and it's, exactly and healthcare like, cost like it's really bad for like it's been shown to be incredibly inflammatory what is that made from Soybean, again cells meat yeah. cells no meat cells no how they're growing it no is that they take cells from other animals and they grow it in a lab There's a couple variations out there because so you there's can know like the one that we're going to eat. There's like purely meat-free meat. But the one how you know which one is going to succeed, you just look at who's funding it. If it's being funded by BlackRock or Bill Gates, 
that's the one we're going to have to eat in the future. Those are the guys who, they don't lose. So, Interesting. Like, I don't get me wrong. Like, I'll eat a fake burger patty that's, like, made out of beans and lentils and whatnot. Doesn't Bill Gates have a lot of farmland? Why is he do? He already controls the seed supply, the global seed <laughs> supply. That's a tariff. I learned that the other day. Oh, is yeah. he part of the seed safe? Yes. The one that's, like, in Iceland or somewhere. It's in Iceland. Yeah. It's yeah. in Norway, I think. Yeah. Or Norway. The, he the controls frozen that. seed bank, yeah. He controls, yeah. like, that's a terrifying thought. But I mean, anyways. I can eat bugs. I can you eat bugs. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I eat chapulines, so I don't care. Final thoughts. So, don't eat before reading this. <laughs> oh, I, my final thought is that restaurants are incredible service providers. And there's so much work that goes into having a functioning team of dysfunctional people and like a place that doesn't get shut down by the health department. So I want to give <laughs> mad props to all the people who work yes, in restaurants because you. it is a challenge. And RIP oh, Anthony Bourdain. Gone too soon. RIP. <laughs> and I'm not going to eat Bill Gates fake meat or take his. You will, Daniel. That, this isn't negotiable. You're going to eat the fake meat and you will like it. I don't even know the, if, if the fake meat is Bill Gates thing, though. Are we sure? It's like impossible Don't, don't worry. Daniel, Donovan. Daniel and I, we're going to build our I own am, ecosystem. Yeah. And we're just going to build in our own bubble. And we're just going right. to eat meat. And we're going to have a cow. And yeah. we're going to eat the butter. And yeah. the... Yeah, no, I was just saying it is, it is fantastic that we got to talk about food. Because one thing I've realized as, as I travel is that, you know, architecture changes and like you know places change and like you know places become more cosmopolitan but food is something that is capable of representing so much history and so much of what a, a place's people value and being able to hold that in your hand and put that in your mouth and like to taste it and to take that in like culture and like oh. invaders brought us a certain food and like these uh, you know people of and, this place prefer this there is and if you want to so be super much classy. in a bite of food and that is something i've always found phenomenal so yeah i'm glad we talked about food well said uh last bit tip your servers thank you listeners <laughs> tip your servers yes the American 20% is too much, but, you know, you can tip. Uh, <laughs> you can always give 1%. And, mm-hmm. like, seriously, if you want to be super classy, tip the back of house. Yeah. Nobody ever does it. And it's super classy. And you oh, yeah. can. I didn't know you yeah. could. And you I'm, really can. Yeah, and I'm just kidding about the 20%. In America, do tip 20% because the waiters oh, are not paid. And it's a whole different system in than India, I guess. Yeah. Sorry? Just, sorry, just yes. Vicky's totally right. In Texas, the minimum wage for service industry is two thirteen an hour. Two dollars and thirteen cents oh, an hour. That sounds bad. And it has not changed. It has not changed and increased with inflation in, really in more bad. than ten years. Like tip your wow. servers, tip your back of house, but say thank you, be nice. These they're humans. For now, I know that is subject. We'll yes, touch on that nice. later. <laughs> <For now. laughs> that goes without saying. For yeah, fuck's sake, nice. guys, be don't nice. Let's, let's go I be mean, nice. don't say for fuck's sake. That's not very nice, but be nice. For now, good stuff. <laughs> All right, yeah, we're nice. out. <laughs>
Like what we're doing? Tell us what you think by leaving a comment and following us on your preferred platform. To continue the conversation, tweet us at The Sunken Tea. And don't forget, you can join in on the adventure by sending us your own sunken treasure by using the link in the description. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again in our next episode of The Sunken Treasures.